Ben Robertson, uh, if we've not met, I'd love to, to meet you afterwards. And I'm a campus minister with RUF, uh, Reform University Fellowship over at William & Mary. Uh, Dennis asked me to share sort of a year-end update here, sort of a missions moment squeezed in. I'm going to be very brief. Uh, but a, lo a lot of people don't know that uh, for RUF to function, we have to raise the support like a lot of missionaries and ministries do. And so um, I don't love raising money, and I don't love asking for money. But I really love RUF, and I really love William and Mary, and I'd love to tell you more another time when we have more time about what God is doing on the campus and even uh, what he's been doing in me. And so if you'd love to come on board with that, I would love for you to come on board with that. Um, but this morning we're looking and continuing our Advent series, and we're looking at the subject of peace, uh, continuing as we have been all along with Romans chapter 5, and I'll also be reading from Isaiah chapter 9. So Romans 5 verse 1 and Later, we'll jump to Isaiah chapter 9. The word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. It's fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me pray. Lord God, we need you. We need your peace. We need you to be with us. We need you to speak to us. We need our lives to be changed, and we long for it to come. And so, 
Lord Jesus, bring your peace. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what is peace? What's a good definition for it? It, it brings to mind a lot of wrong definitions, doesn't it? Especially this time of year, this sort of uh, superficial sentimentality. It's sort of the peacefulness of the season. Uh, I sort of think of a sort of hippie, mystical thing. You know, I, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And we just all hold hands, that idea of peace. I think more common in the church is this idea that's sort of a, a pietistic, almost Gnostic separation between life and this sort of ethereal peace I can jump into just in my mind and in my heart, which is a little bit closer. I think that's part of the biblical peace in the book of Philippians. Paul talks about the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, ruling our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's certainly part of it. The biblical concept of peace is even more. We see it here both in Romans and Isaiah, this idea. First, there's this idea of a ceasefire. That's, we think of peace in that way too, right? Like a, there's a war, and then it's over, and we have peace, right? We're not shooting our cannons at each other. The garments rolled in blood or burned for fuel for a fire. The war is over. The oppressor's rod has been broken. But even more than that, as wonderful as that is, if some of you have been to literal war. And when it's over, that's amazing, right? And that's good news. But the biblical idea of peace is even more. It's this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of things being set completely right. This idea in the Hebrew prophets of shalom, the word for peace, shalom. I'm going to read to you a really long quote by a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga describes this idea of peace. So hang in there. It's long, but it's good. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise be made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, Weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons in their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in the streets and from men on ships. And this webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Of course, the dreams of the Hebrew prophets are visionary. The regular bursting of high-altitude winery casks so that the mountains may stream with Chardonnay is not necessarily a feature of everyone's ideal world. Still, 
Every one of us does possess the idea of a world in which things are as they ought to be. Moreover, though we would wonder about some of its features, would other people's annoying music play at any part in my perfect world? Would it at least be audible only to its own fans? We would probably still agree on many of the broad outlines of a transformed world. It would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. Nations and people groups in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and other people groups. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men till a crisis arose. Then, with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in all the areas of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction of both. Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets will be cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of the other public officials. Broadband networks would be strong enough to enable quick downloads. <laughs> Highway overpasses would be graffiti-free. Graffiti I actually disagree with planting on that one. I've seen some pretty skilled taggers out there. <laughs> Professors would know students' names while also leading such lively classes that students no longer felt like Facebooking their way through them. Nobody would unfriend anybody. Teachers of third graders would no longer make them sing, I am special, I am special, look at me, look at me, to the tune of Frere Jaca. <laughs> Business associates would rejoice in each other's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of South of southern North Dakota at Hoople and would try to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate each other's virtues. Blogs would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these accounts and call to each other about them and savor them with their single martinis. In short, Shalom is the way things ought to be. The way things are supposed to be. Do you long for that? Do you want that? Your neighbors do. Our world does. And so Jesus comes. And from that time on, this is how it's been, right? 2,000 years of utopia we've experienced. But no. It's not that way. Even in the most simple things, I remember last summer, my family and I, we were driving down to Florida for RUF summer conference, and Dawn had organized everything and packed all the stuff that we needed, all the snacks arranged and everything in the car that we would need. We had a series of DVDs to put in the player, and by the time we made it to Hopewell, it had started. You know, we're out of fruit snacks. You didn't pack the kind of Chex Mix I like. This movie's boring. Can we try another one? I need more wet wipes. And then by the time we made it to North Carolina, actually, the kids started complaining, too. Um, it was um, a mess. You would have. My kids are great in a car, actually. They're pretty good about it. Um, but you know what this is like, right? No matter how perfect you want to make it, no matter how well-planned you are, things fall apart. And there's no shalom because total peace, this fullness of shalom, so much of it is not yet. It's not yet. We see global warfare. And 
Man, you read the news right now, it's, it's a little frightening. Nationally, we are totally polarized at a level that many are saying is unprecedented. I'm not sure that's true, but it certainly feels that way. Conflicts locally and personally. You think about, forget Williamsburg, forget the nation, forget the world. Like, I'm a hot mess, right? Like, th- how was Thanksgiving for you with your family? Was it good? I mean, I hope it was pretty good, but all the things we can't even get along with ourselves. We can't help being offensive or getting offended non-stop. There is so much about this shalom that just is not yet. And yet, there is so much already. You heard these categories already and not yet? Of what Jesus has come to bring in his kingdom. There is so much already. Having been justified by his son, we now have peace with God. That is a lot of already. And that is not nothing. That is a big deal. God who was called a whirlwind and a storm and a consuming fire. And we now have peace with him through Christ. We have this shalom. We have the ceasefire. And we have this sense of wholeness. Of things being restored and set right. Uh, Things are right between you and me. It's not just this judicial pardon of a technicality. But more of a sense of safety. Where God is saying to us, you are safe with me now. Things are all right. And this is the foundational peace or shalom that has already been done for us and it is already set. And from that peace with God, our peace, our shalom with one another can start to creep in. Into that not yet. The already moving into the not yet. We as the church and we as individual believers are made to be outposts of shalom. We are to be a place where that breaks in and comes through, an already shalom and a not yet world. I'll start globally. That's the hardest one for us, right? It's just normal people. Um, But at the same time, in this era that we live in now, there is so much potential for a church like ours and individuals like us to actually affect change in other places in a way that's just totally unprecedented, to make things more like the way that they should be with giving to missions and planting churches and supporting those efforts as well as people who are going out there and and trying to provide clean water and a sense of physical safety uh, in other countries, shutting down human trafficking and so on and so forth. There's so much that we can be a part of and participate in. And when we do it, we're not just being good. We're saying, peace on earth. Let us make it so as best we can. And nationally, we don't have a lot of clout nationally. Some of you do, but I certainly don't. But we desperately need some shalom in our cultural moment. There is no middle ground anymore in the cultural conversation, is there? It's kind of all or nothing And you and I and the world needs patient, humble, principled, reasonable, and gracious people engaging in these things. And not just an us versus them firing something off on Facebook because you're offended or whatever it is that we're mad about. We need people who treat their coworkers with dignity and are defending women and believing them 
and standing up for alienated people who are injured and hurt and listening to their story with the same good faith that you'd want them to listen to yours. The author Brene Brown in her recent book says this, it's a lot harder to hate people up close. It's a lot harder to hate people up close. All Democrats are losers. Well, except for my next door neighbor, who is incredible and brought us a meal and is incredibly kind to my children. And Republicans are just a bunch of selfish jerks. That's all they are, and bigots. Well, except for my brother-in-law. He's, he's a pretty good guy. He's the exception, right? So we make these exceptions to thinking that these people are somehow outliers because it's easier to keep people at a distance and hate them from afar. But Shalom says get close and know that person and listen. Or just think even more locally. That's gone a little local there. But locally with uh, the, the ministry here in, in town, you can ask a deacon or a leader at this church about it. 3E Restoration, which our church partners with, that comes alongside those who are homeless and helps restore the sense of dignity that they already have from God but aren't treated that way by everyone else. The homeless shelter that was mentioned before that I think you can still sign up for, at least come to the meeting next week and bringing those things about. And I'm so encouraged by the movements, both in this church and in other churches in our community right here in Williamsburg over the last 10 years. It's been unreal. The stuff didn't exist like this 10 years ago. Shalom is breaking in. Or personally, in that sense of relationships with your family, your neighbors, people around you, your coworkers, let me ask you this. Do people instinctively confide in you? Do they share hard things? Are you a safe person to tell a story to that might be a little embarrassing or shaming? See, I think it's possible to have this technical concept of justification that God is going to forgive us, declare us righteous, and we can sort of extend that concept to other people. But at the same time, there's this disconnect where we don't really embody this idea of shalom, that it's okay. I won't have an it's okay relational attitude towards you, but I might grant you generic forgiveness. Now, I'm not talking about peace faking, pretending everything's fine when it's not. Or not naming real consequences and restitution that needs to be made over serious things. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is this posture, this sense that we can have among us that, yes, you're forgiven, but you and I both know you don't really belong here. And when that's the vibe, instead of us feeling the sense of gratitude at our justification, this gratitude and joy and our forgiveness, we actually just sort of feel a little bit more ashamed for having received it in the first place. You're right. I don't belong here. And so we don't speak up to each other when we are struggling or hurting or failing or even just tempted. And we stay isolated and alone. And Shalom says you're forgiven and you're safe here. You're one of us. You belong. God has made it okay. Wholeness and completeness has come. Well, how did God do that for us? How does he create it in us? Back to Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That he has given us his son while we were yet enemies and said, peace to you. I am with you. Things are set right. Things are okay. I was away this week at RUF staff training. I was in Denver. Uh, and the last morning of staff training over the last several years, what they do is they, they bring in an older pastor, because most of us in RUF, I'm actually one of the older guys in RUF. Lisa. They call me a veteran. It's ridiculous. Um, so, so they've realized this, that we need some, some input uh, from some guys who've been around the block a few more times. And we heard from a pastor this week on, on Friday from California. And I want to share both of these stories. Um, they're not my stories, but, I, man, I needed to hear them. Because they were so much about shalom. And they were also about church discipline. And I really need to hear it. I think you might, too. Uh, the first story was about a young girl in their church um, who had been raised in the church. She was a teenager, and she got pregnant obviously out of wedlock. And she went to the pastor, and she went to the elders, and she went to her parents. She was broken and afraid and distressed, um, but she was repenting, and they could see it. They could tell. This is not just, I'm, oh, no, I got caught, but this, there was real brokenness there. And they came around her and prayed for her and let her know that God forgives her, and, and so do they. But because of the nature of that issue, they kind of needed to tell the church because most, most sins, like people don't see physical evidence of it, you know, growing on us. Uh, and they're like, okay, we, have, we need to talk about this so people know that, like, and with her permission and her approval, they, they announced it to the church. And they, they said, look, you know, she's come forward. And here's the thing. We're not just going to not fence her. Like, she can take communion. She's part of us. She's repented. It's real. It's genuine. We're not just going to say, okay. But beyond that, our job now is to love her. And so we're going to have baby showers, and we're going to baptize that child in this church, and he or she, when she comes or he comes, will be one of us and in this family. And afterwards, the church just embraced her, and people loved on her. Well, sitting in the back that day was a visitor who was an agnostic, not sure about Christianity, she was 20 years old and was pregnant and not married. And she had scheduled an abortion for that week and just thought, you know, I'm just going to go to church. I just kind of need something, but I'm expecting a lot of judgment and condemnation. She was there that morning of that announcement, and she thought, if that could be for me. She became a Christian that morning. She met with the elders and the pastor later on. She was baptized into the church, and her child, whom she kept, was later baptized in shortly after the other baby. Second story, same church. The previous pastor of that church had stepped down and had been discovered that he was having an affair. And in the community where they lived in California, the word got out, of course, and quite a few people left. And this pastor who had taken over later, had, as he got to know the community, the more time he spent in that town, he said, you know, if I have a nickel for every person who told me, oh, I used to go to your church, 
and he was very angry with this previous guy for blowing it. Many people in the church were wounded. Many people in the community were upset, and understandably and rightfully so. Several years later, so he was there in church getting ready, shuffling over his sermon notes, and he could just sort of feel a buzz in the room. He's like, what is going on? And somebody leaned over and they said, hey, the the former pastor's here. Go, okay. (laughs) Uncomfortable, awkward. He he preached, and the man had been disciplined and, and sent out. He didn't repent. He wouldn't cooperate with the process, and he was like, gone, taken out. He came up to the pastor and he said, hey, I want to talk to you and I'd like to meet with the elders as soon as it's convenient for them. He said, okay, absolutely. He came to them and he said, "Um, God's been working on me and I was fighting him for a very long time and what I did was wrong. Not cooperating was wrong. Running away was wrong. I've been going to some other churches and I've confessed to some other people, but I was so afraid to just come back here and face the people I'd hurt, but I want to do it now. He said they had a service after a process, both with the local church and with the regional church, the presbytery, and he said he brought them back into the church. And just like with the girl, they stood up and they made an announcement of his repentance. He had reconciled with his wife. They had been brought back together. And as the pastor restored him to membership in the church, he said, without being told to, without a command, the entire church just all stood up in silence. He said he looked out at his congregation just to see them all standing there. He said, it was as if they had seen Jesus arrive in that place. And I tell you those stories because they're not just about grace. They are, but they are about God's shalom of setting things right, of restoring it. And I'm telling them to you because I needed to hear and I need you to know with me that those aren't just sermon illustration stories. This was a real man in a real church just like ours, in a real community just like ours. And God is at work for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And so we light a candle of peace in a world that needs it so badly as people who need it so badly. A son is given, and God came close to bring peace to his enemies. And so at Advent, we wait and we proclaim, and we long for the day when every tear will be wiped away, proclaiming his arrival of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and our Prince of Peace. May he make it so among us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we long for your peace. We long for your restoration. We long to be people who are like you. May we extend that to one another and may we celebrate what you have already done and are doing in and through people like us. We love you, Lord, and we long for your peace to come. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.